All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for this opportunity to gather together as your children. Help us to not take this special event for granted. We thank you we're able to do it more than once a week to your glory as we submit to your word and the authority of your Son. Father, we ask your blessing be upon everyone here this evening, especially those suffering, especially physically in different forms of pain. We also ask special prayers right now for Kathy, who's in the hospital. We ask you to ease her pain, give her wisdom, and show her your hand upon her. We thank you in advance for your grace and mercy. And we ask that you bless this message. Have your spirit guide us and help us understand the supernatural things you want us to know. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. All right. The Difficult Passages, Grace and Works, Part 12. Turning your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 24. Luke 18, 24. <clears throat> Salvation is a work of God. It must be because man is incapable of meeting God's perfect standards. So therefore we see the statement from the Lord after he confronted the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 24. And Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler, and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. A rich man has great difficulty humbling himself. He thinks he's something when he's nothing. But with God, all things are possible. And only God can draw a man and humble his heart, even bringing a rich man to salvation. I was thinking earlier today how the reason most of us don't have money is because it's best for us that we don't have money or a lot of money because arrogance can very easily creep in and uh, take a person away from God, make a, make a, take a humble person and make them arrogant if someone's not ready to handle it. So with God, all things are possible and even those that are arrogant, whether it's due to riches or not, only God can humble their heart and bring them to salvation. Almost immediately after this passage in Luke 18, we see a corrupt rich man become saved, our old friend Zacchaeus. And this shows, this is Jesus showing all things are possible with God. Right after he said this statement and the people were perplexed, who can be saved? So not only did Jesus say all things are possible with God, but he gave them an example. And go to Luke 19, verse 8. Jesus drew Zacchaeus 
and Zacchaeus repented, evidenced by his actions of forsaking his wealth. Look at Luke 19.8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. By the way, what does Abraham do? Abraham's faith was so powerful, for lack of a better word, that he did stuff. And as we've been learning, that's what faith does. Real faith actually lives on it, acts upon it, because it's real. And so he says that this man, why, why did Jesus say in verse 9, today is salvation has come to this house? He said that after what Zacchaeus did, he repented and said, I'll give away my money. I'll pay back anyone four times as much as I need to. And that um, forsaking of his wealth was evidence that his heart had changed. So all things are possible with God, even to, towards a rich tax collector, a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus, who were, who were known in that day to be crooked, greedy people. And so all the praise goes to God because God draws a man and changes a man like that. As the Spirit brought up on Sunday, we in America are all rich by world standards. Rich. And we tend to think we're not because we compare ourselves to people who are richer. But we're all rich by world standards. How many people, however, keep God on the side? but really have not admitted that they're poor and hopeless. That they're not good enough on their own. How many people in our country are like that? Because they think they're all set financially. They're comfortable. They don't have pressures financially, let's say. And so God is okay in their life, but he's on the side, as though they don't really need him, or only when they need him. They don't realize their depravity. How many people have actually repented like Zacchaeus repented in Luke 19? On the board, Jesus said to one of the churches in Revelation 3.17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. A very good description of the average American these days, unfortunately. So this is why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The attitude of humility and surrender is hard to come by because people stand on the wrong thing for security. But God can do it at the same time, so we mustn't lose hope. God showed the apostles he could do it with Zacchaeus. Only God, however, can change the heart of a man, and God can draw him. We know that God will only give grace to the humble also, not to the arrogant who say, I'm rich and I have need of nothing. By the way, do they say that out loud usually? Usually they'll act humble or include God in their speech to, I don't know, 
look good or make sure they don't make sure they head to their bets in all areas. But they say that in their soul, don't they? I'm rich and I need them nothing. Look at me, I'm good. And so there's deception and there's arrogance. But humility is what God is waiting to see in the soul of a man. And it's then that God can act upon it. So humility might say something like, I want to, but I know I'm unable. That's what true humility looks like in its rawest form. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Luke 17, 5. I want to have more faith. I need help. And that's what the Lord's looking for, that humility. Now, Jesus, even though he was perfect, was the most humble man to ever live. I don't know about you, but if I was perfect, I'd be one arrogant dude, right? You wouldn't be able to, <laughs> I mean, you know, don't just laugh at me. You'd do the same thing. If you were perfect, <laughs> no, if you were perfect now, I mean, in every way, <laughs> how arrogant would we be? Oh my God, how scary that would be. We're arrogant when we're so imperfect and we have one good thing go right. And we're like, look at me, right? So how arrogant would we be if we were perfect? Yet Jesus was perfect. And he was the most humble man alive. Even though Jesus was truly rich, being the son of God from heaven, he surrendered to the Father's will as a man. If anyone was truly rich, it was Jesus. If anyone was uh, rightly rich, justly rich, it was the perfect son of God. And yet he surrendered to the Father's will as a man. The perfect man admitted the Father's will was more important than his own will. Really should blow our minds. We should really, like we could think about that for days. Matthew 26, 42. How does Jesus say this when he's perfect and the only worthy one? He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he was talking about the cross, right before the cross. If I must go through this, if this can't pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So in light of the fact that the Lord was innocent, he could have rightly walked away from the cross without guilt or condemnation. And yet he said, your will be done, Father. So on the board... This phrase is the sign of a truly humble heart that has been given faith. It is evidenced when two hearts agree and confess the same thing. Since God is immutable, never changes, it is man whose faith is reconciled to God. Matthew 26, 42, Matthew 6, 10 for another example. Submission and surrender to the sovereign of the universe. That's what Jesus did, the perfect man. Only the Spirit can open the eyes of the blind. Those of us who are sinners and are guilty and have no reason not to submit and surrender, but are arrogant. And only Jesus can open the eyes of the blind to this need, the need to 
surrender, the need to ultimately say, your will be done, Father. I'm nothing. And the Lord taught us to pray with the same priority that he had in his heart and his actions. Go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 again. The Lord taught us to pray with the same priority that he had in his heart, even though he was perfect. Matthew 6, 8. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there a simpler, more profound prayer that we can pray? The irony of it is it's simple, yet ridiculously profound and perfect. It's from the Lord, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus cuts right to what's most important and tells us to pray this way. So my prayer is that this phrase, your will be done, is in all of our hearts, like our heart of hearts, you know, that we really um, believe this, that this is our top priority, that God's will is our top priority in our hearts. Not in our lips, not for the wrong reasons in our actions, but truly in our hearts to be able to say, your will be done, Father, whatever it is. So we've been talking about how this ties into authority orientation. And authority orientation is part of God's will, both at salvation and beyond. Look on the board at Ephesians 6, 5, and 6 in the NIV. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Doing the will of God from your heart. What's our phrase? Your will be done. Doing the will of God from your heart. There's authority orientation. And remember, Jesus showed us the way to do this. He was authority oriented perfectly. He showed us how to do it. Even though he's the one that had the right to walk away. He doesn't ask us to do something he hasn't already done and shown us. So on the board, regarding your will be done, the Word tells us that we believers are predestined, called for this purpose, in 1 Peter 2.21, to orient to the sovereign God of the universe. That's part of our calling, to submit to Him and to walk in the good works He puts before us. So we were all born disoriented. Therefore, we must seek orientation. We must seek His way, His will. Turn again in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2.21. We're still doing a bit of review here from Sunday. But we were predestined for this. In other words, like, why does God save us? 
And why does he leave us behind after he saves us? To walk in the good works he's put before us. Part of our calling. Part of our purpose. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Part of our purpose. Part of the reason he called us and saved us. So that we can follow Christ's example, even in suffering. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 1, since you're right there. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Think about that statement before we read on. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Isn't that true? When you suffer, don't you kind of forget about your own will or your own, you even forget about your own desires and what your flesh wants to do, right? When you suffer, God puts you in a place where you can't do your own will in a way. You can't go frolic with the world. I mean, you need a little more pain, God says, all right. So I can humble you, so you can be purified, so you can walk forward. As the rest of the verse says, to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. It's one reason we need to be refined by suffering in the refiner's fire. So we cease from sin or selfishness, and we say, wow, you know, my life is short. <sighs> I'm going... Just whatever you want, Lord, your will be done. So we're nothing without the Lord. And a lot of times it takes suffering to realize that. His will is the only important will in the universe. And so we're called to suffer so that he can wake us up fully. He can clear out a lot of those lusts that we keep following and chasing after. And we can say on our knees, your will be done, Father. I'm tired. I can't do this on my own. So back to authority orientation. Orientation to the sovereign God of the universe implies authority orientation. The very relationship demands a master-slave paradigm. It's an intrinsic fact. It just is. He's God and we're not. He's the creator with a created, right? He's the molder with the clay. It doesn't get any more opposite in terms of total ability and total inability. And so the very relationship between the God and creator of the universe is master-slave. We're his creation. So on the board... You don't need any other reason than the Lord who has commanded you to submit, to submit. Why do we need more than that? Are we going to be an arrogant teenager? He tells you to submit and he's Lord God. Okay. Make your life easier. No human authority is perfect, yet all authority is delegated by God. Your focus needs to be on this fact, not the failures of those in authority. What fact? 
that all authority is delegated by God. If our eyes stay on that, we can endure even unfair treatment by the authorities. So as we obey and follow the Lord's will, we will suffer for it, being in the devil's world. And that's what we're like here, we're called to do. Like we're coming back to church here. It's like a rallying point, right? The whole mass unit idea that pastors brought up. You go out and get injured, you come back, right? And you, you rally around the word and, and with each other. Well, we're going back out to the unfair world again. Are we willingly going to submit and suffer to the authority if needed? Or are we going to keep kicking against it? If the Lord was persecuted, we'll be persecuted. So on the board, regarding divine purpose in suffering and obedience, we take heart in the fact that suffering has a greater purpose than what's on the surface. And in fact, there are good, eternal ramifications we contribute to, all by obedience to His will. For example, Galatians 6.9. Again, we take heart, or we should take heart, in the fact that suffering has a greater purpose than what's on the surface. And in fact, there are good eternal ramifications we contribute to. We contribute to, through our obedience. All by obedience to His will. Galatians 6.9. On the board... Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We must cling to the fact that there's divine purpose in suffering and obedience. There's a greater purpose than what's on the surface, always. Now, it takes faith, doesn't it? It takes trust. But there's always a greater purpose than we see with our eyes. And so let us not lose heart in doing good, in obeying unfair authority. Don't lose heart. Be like, okay, Lord, you dealt with unfair authority all the time and you were perfect. You humbled yourself and you were perfect, so I'm going to humble myself. How much more should we? Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And when we walk by faith, and not by sight, He will allow us to see the greater purpose in His time. And it's kind of an ironic thing. But when we walk by faith, when we trust in Him, when we submit during suffering to unfair authorities, for example, we walk by faith in that way and not by sight, then He lets us see, eventually. He lets us see the purpose in the suffering, eventually. Maybe not right away, but... He shows you things later on. So ironically, He lets you see, but only when you agree to go forward without seeing, by faith. So, you know, in His time, <laughs> you know, he, he grants us little glimpses of the greater purpose. So we're encouraged. But we shouldn't need that to operate by faith. We should realize there's divine purpose in suffering and obedience. His will be done. And some of that may be the healing of others, both in time and eternity. 
I mean, like, so if, if I told you, if you go through this suffering over there, that so-and-so will be saved, wouldn't you be, like, a lot happier going through the suffering? Yeah. So why do you need that? Because you want to see. What is God glorified by when we walk by faith? So do you really need God to say to you, hey, by the way, this person's going to be saved because you're obedient in that unfair authority situation? Or can we trust him? that he has a divine purpose in suffering and obedience. And one day, by grace, he'll show it to you if you just go forward by faith. That's like the life of Abraham in a, you know, summary. So you might have the privilege of healing others. You're just not, you're not seeing it. How many times have we noted if one person gets saved, because of our example of humi- humility or, or humbly suffering for his name, it's all worth it. I mean, who doesn't agree to that? You know, I think of uh, Kathy in the hospital now. I think of Frank who's still in the nursing home and struggling to walk again. If there's one person that's saved eternally because of their example of humility and saying, your will be done in you know, hopeless situations. All worth it. Kathy would say the same, that Frank would say the same thing. All worth it. So what do we have to see before we believe? Or will we say, your will be done, Father, and let him show you what he wants to show you? So we have the privilege of contributing to his eternal glory, to make an eternal impact. But it all begins with your will be done, even from salvation and onward. On the board, 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. By his willing suffering we were healed. By his obedience to the will of the Father, even though he was perfect. But because of that special obedience and willing suffering, we were healed. So Jesus suffered unjustly for the sake of others. If we are to follow in his steps, like 1 Peter 2.21 says, then is it fair to say that we too might follow his pattern and others might be healed by our obedience? In some smaller way? Absolutely. People listen to what you do, not what you say. People listen to what you do, not what you say. For example, it's by seeing Christ's love in somebody or by seeing humility in someone who's being treated unfairly that someone might come to the Lord and see the power of Christ in you. They, didn't, they wouldn't listen to your words. They've seen a bunch of other hypocrites use Jesus' name and then do evil things, let's say. But what did they see? They saw your actions. They saw your humility, your surrender, your submission in unfair circumstances. People listen to what you do, not what you say. And so we all have that opportunity in suffering that opportunity in unfair authority situations to obey 
in humility even when we're right and we're being wronged. And that's what draws people to Christ. You healed somebody by your actions. And may we never forget, by the way, the Lord has spared our lives, right? By grace. He spared our lives by grace. So now we're here, we're left here for the sake of others being spared, whatever the sacrifice it takes. Your will be done, Father. Like, who are we to not care about others being spared? To be so arrogant. It's okay that he saved you from your sin. But you're not willing to sacrifice so that someone else can be saved from their sin? And I know many of you are, but just stuff to mull over. And it's all possible by his grace to his glory. God can do the impossible, even with the most hard, hard heart out there that you're dealing with. God can break them. God can draw them. Nothing's impossible with him. So again, regarding grace and works, grace is foundational to authority orientation, since authority orientation is a good work of faith. If this is true, then it stands to reason that a person who doesn't produce any good works is a person who rejects God's grace, even at salvation. When we cut right to the chase, receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. Receiving God's grace is a respect for authority issue. Authority orientation itself is a grace gift. Obedience results in receiving more grace. And this is a key element of the doctrine of grace upon grace that commences with salvation, such as John 1.16 and Matthew 13.12. If a man is humble, God will help him see his place and see the Lord's sovereignty. God will help man orient to his sovereignty, even at salvation. Again, on the board, sovereignty comes down to who has the rights in the equation. Unless God has given you rights, you have none. For example, no man has ever been given the right to put God on trial or challenge his authority. This is why we say something is unrighteous or unright. It's because the perpetrator does not have the right to do what they're doing. Someone at, at the point of like presented with the gospel, do they have the right to say they don't want to submit to the Lord? They don't have the right. They have the freedom to do so, but they don't have the right. So that's why sovereignty is such a big issue, even in salvation. It's admitting who has all the rights and admitting you have none. So as believers, sharing the good news with other people, the worst thing we can do is enable somebody's flesh. Enable somebody's flesh or give them the impression it's okay to challenge the sovereignty of God. I had one guy one time say to me, um, we're in the park one day, and they were doing some drugs actually, a few guys. 
And, you know, we started talking about the Lord and how he paid for all of his sins and all that. And the guy said something like, um, so can I, you know, accept him and still do my drugs? Right. And you could see the arrogance coming. It wasn't a humility submission thing going on. It was, well, I'll only accept him if I can keep doing what I want to do. And years passed with a watered down gospel in my soul. I would have said, yeah, he'll still save you. Just believe. But with an attitude like he had, would he have really believed biblically? Would he have trusted in Christ? Would he have submitted? So thank God, by the Holy Spirit, I said something like, um, you know, God is not mocked. And I, I kind of let it go from there and let him rest on that. But in the past, I would have wrongly enabled his flesh to think he could have his own sovereignty and still have Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I hope that that makes sense. So as believers sharing the good news, the worst thing we can do is enable somebody's flesh or give them the impression it's okay to challenge the sovereignty of God. Listen, like lay it on the line for people when you give the gospel. Don't compromise. You know, tell the truth. Otherwise, you're, you're giving somebody a false gospel or a weak gospel or a false hope even. It's our responsibility when giving the gospel to let others know there's nothing good about them. Don't be shy about that. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. Let people know. In, in grace, there's nothing good about you. You are actually hopeless without Christ as your substitute. So regarding unrighteousness, or not being right, the last thing we need to do is encourage the flesh in others, especially regarding salvation. A dead man that thinks he can do something good is gravely mistaken. Ironically, it says gravely. Huh? They are truly deceived. Life itself has been counterfeited. Think about that statement. Life itself has been counterfeited. The Bible describes unbelievers as unrighteous because their works are not right. They're not alive. They're dead. So their works can't be real even. Many are living a lie, in other words. Life itself has been counterfeited. They think they have life in the world while they're walking around spiritually dead like zombies, separated from God. And so we share with others in love that they are poor and blind and naked without the Lord. No matter how rich or well-dressed you are right now, you are poor and blind and naked without the Lord. That they were even born in unrighteousness. That they have a big problem with God Almighty. Unless they repent. So we were all born unright, in unrighteousness. The Bible describes an unbeliever as being dead in their sins, Ephesians 2.1. And if God demands good works from his own children, and he does, he creates them in such a way that they're able to do what is right. God makes us able. All you can do is be available, right? Be humble. Only God can make us able to do good works. 
Only a living person is able to produce anything. A dead person cannot. Only God can make us able. The unbeliever needs to know that and even cling to that promise that surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior will free God's grace to change them. But only a surrender in faith to Christ will allow God to change you and make you able, make you able to do good, good things for the Lord, truly good things. By faith, they will receive the miracle of true life and be made new. So may we never take away from the gospel and the power of His grace and salvation. And that's what we've been talking about. That's what the Spirit's had us on. This idea of two gospel perversions. People talk about adding to salvation all the time. Faith plus works equals salvation, which obviously is wrong, and that points to legalism. But how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion, subtracting from salvation? Faith, but I don't really need God's work to be evident in me, or God doesn't have to change me. That's okay. I'll keep doing what I want to do and stay my own sovereign. And I'll claim to have faith, but deny His sovereignty. That's also a perversion, pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace in saving man. We saw on Sunday in Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you. Why does the Lord tell us not to add to or take away from what He's commanding us? It says it right there, doesn't it? Finish the sentence. What's it say? So that we may keep His commands. Why not add to anything? Why not take away anything? So we keep His commands, just as He set them up, just as He declared the gospel, the narrow way. Don't add to my word, don't take away from it. Don't add to my gospel, don't take away from it. Or you're going to be off the narrow path. And what is part of the narrow path? Obeying His commands. Does that sound familiar? We've been called for the purpose of good works for the Lord. And part of good works is keeping His commands. That's what we've been meant for. That's what we've been born again for, changed for. And He empowers us to do such. So the reason someone might take away from the Lord's gospel is so that he doesn't have to obey His commands. You're like, why would anybody take away? Even from God's grace at salvation. So you don't have to be under His sovereignty. So you can keep your own sovereign. I'll take the Savior part, but not the Lord part. People will do that to keep their own agendas. Like that example I gave you with the guy in the drugs. People will do that to keep their own agendas so they don't have to submit to the sovereignty. That's not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. As we've seen in detail over the last year or more, the believer, the true believer, actually keeps God's commands. That's one of the signs he's a believer. According to the scripture, it's one of the signs. Again, read 1 John 
as a whole book in context, John plainly says the believer keeps God's commands. And by the way, we're talking about lifestyle here, right? We're talking about habitual lifestyle. We're not talking about perfection. All right? But John plainly says the believer, he keeps God's commands. The unbeliever, he doesn't keep God's commands. The believer, he lives in righteousness. The unbeliever lives in unrighteousness. The believer loves the brethren. The unbeliever doesn't love the brethren. He doesn't know God. It's like plain as day in 1 John. So that's why, you know, don't, don't add to a takeaway take from my word because guess what? You're not going to be in the right place. You're not going to obey my commands like a believer does. Someone that accepts all his grace at salvation even. So why might one take away from the Lord's gospel? To keep his own agenda while hoping to get a free pass. But the Lord is the Lord, isn't he? He's not like half a Lord. He's the Lord. A person can't ask for some of him because it's not possible to receive some of him. He must willingly receive all of him. So regarding the other gospel perversion, if a person isn't willing to submit and surrender to the Lord at salvation and doesn't want to give up his self-life, for example, to avoid keeping his commands, well, where's that person's heart at? Just where's that person's heart? If someone isn't willing to submit and surrender to him, where's that person's heart? With self. It's not with the Lord. Salvation's a heart issue, right? God's not looking for a mental ascent. You know. He's looking for a person's heart, like Zacchaeus, who surrendered. If a person isn't willing to submit and surrender to the Lord at salvation and doesn't want to give up his self-life to avoid keeping his commands, where is that person's heart at? It's arrogant. It's not humble. Right? Fair to say? Only an arrogant heart doesn't desire to submit to the one who can save him as sovereign. Why wouldn't, and why wouldn't somebody want to submit to the one who's going to save them? doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't you say, okay, I'll follow you. You're going to save me? Okay, I'll follow you. But no, arrogance creeps in. The arrogant heart that takes away from God's grace at salvation does not receive the Christ that is both Lord and Savior. Again, the arrogant heart that takes away from God's grace at salvation does not receive the Christ that is both Lord and Savior. Remember Acts 16.31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So again, regarding the other gospel perversion on the board, this theology, subtracting from salvation, supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. It's actually not even possible to suppose that God actually does less than he does when he saves somebody. 
And this causes a huge ripple effect in that person's soul because the scriptures that now don't fit are going to have to be forced into different places at some point. Doctrines will be created to give everything a place, even if it's out of place with the gospel. This is done after salvation and causes more and more confusion the further one moves away from the gospel presentation. All this comes from saying God's grace does not necessarily produce good works in the life of the believer. It doesn't have to. And again, that's somebody supposing that God actually does less for somebody than he really does at the point of salvation. So perversion means unrighteousness. Anytime we misappropriate holy scripture, it's no longer holy. In fact, we've taken something perfect and perverted it. Since God's word is perfect, the perversion is not. Any derivative of such a perversion is no longer righteous. Subtracting from the gospel ends up with a work of man being added, even if it is later on in some form. And so an unrighteous perversion results. And we saw this on Sunday also regarding gospel perversions. God will never pervert his own word. There's only one way that verbal plenary scripture fits, and that's his way. Any rearrangement of scripture immediately leaves the effort up to man. Hence, it's a work of man. This work often begins with subtracting the gospel or subtracting from the gospel and completes with the consummation of a perverted theology. Think about it. If man denies the fullness of God's grace at salvation, then he's left to complete this unholy, unrighteous work on his own. He may even try changing himself. How many Christians do that? They try changing themselves. They try willing themselves to be good or to follow him. And it's a forced thing. And that's why they don't have peace or, or joy in the process of it. Man getting in the way, holding to his own solutions, and even holding to his own sins, prevents himself from turning to Christ wholeheartedly at salvation. Let me say that again. Man getting in his own way, holding on to his own solutions and even his own sins, prevents himself from turning to Christ wholeheartedly at salvation. And so he tries to take salvation like a grab bag. Therefore, surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior cannot take place. And there are consequences later on. So, again, regarding the two gospel perversions, the only difference between the adding to salvation perversion and the subtracting from salvation one is the timing of the flesh's own works. Either way, the flesh gets involved. The prior injects human works at the point of salvation. The latter injects them later. Both perversions are unrighteous because man never has the right to supplant God's grace in any good work before or after salvation. But the thing is, Satan's a deceiver and he makes it look and sound really good. 
He disguises himself as an angel of light, as a minister of righteousness. And so lies come from a good person. Lies come from a seemingly good preacher. They don't stick to the word. They add to salvation or take away from it. And they follow the traditions of men too, for example. He disguises himself as an angel of light. The Spirit's warning us not to deny God's power in salvation. To say he can't or doesn't have to change somebody that trusts in Christ is really an abomination when you think about it. It goes against the whole of Scripture. So on the board, God's grace, when received in humility at salvation, changes people. And it does not allow people to stay in the slavery of sin under its domain and power. To say God's grace doesn't change people is an attack on the Spirit. Titus 2, 11 through 14 and Jude 3 through 4. Go to Titus 2, verse 11. We only got about uh, 10 minutes left here, so I might skip to a couple points I want to get to. But again, on the board, God's grace, when received in humility at salvation, changes people. And it does not allow people to stay in the slavery of sin under its domain and power. To say God's grace doesn't change people is an attack on the Spirit. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who, he, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. Why did God call us? For the purpose of good works. Why did God purify us for his own possession, make us his own? So we would be zealous for good deeds. Go to Jude 3. Jude is right before the book of Revelation. Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Some people in the churches deny Jesus as Master and Lord, and it's seen in their actions. It's seen by their abuse of grace, if you will, which really means they didn't accept His grace changing them at salvation. This is a sign that they've strayed from the faith, even from the beginning. 
Notice Jude is talking about eternal salvation in view here. Our common salvation includes Jesus as Lord and Savior, not adding to or taking away from His gospel or perverting His grace, as Jude talks about. So again, if you stick with this, the Spirit's going to show you what He's getting at. It's easy to... um, to think some of these points are too complicated or, um, you know, too um, in-depth to fully grasp. But if you stick with this, the Spirit's going to show you what He's trying to say to us, to you. So stay humble and don't quit. The Spirit's working on you. The point is that God's grace at salvation always results in something good in our lives. Very good actually. It always does. It has to. He changes us and makes us new, and that inevitably results in good works in our lives, which He has preordained for us to walk in. Would He ask us to walk in the good works that He puts before us without giving us the power? I mean, He'd be like, He wouldn't want us to do that. He'd be like, oh, no. Drop the flesh. You know, get out of the way. Let me give you my power. Now go to work. But without His power, we can't do anything pleasing to Him. So go again to Ephesians 2, verse 8, as we begin to close. God has to change us and make us new if He expects us to walk in the path that He's laid before us. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. So there we have it again, not as a result of works. This salvation thing, this grace, this salvation, this faith, this gift is not a result of your works. You are impotent. You can't do anything. You're totally unable. But in verse 10, what happens? If you have been saved by this grace through faith, You are supernaturally changed. So now in verse 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Guess what, people? We went from being saved not as a result of works to being told that we're His workmanship and we're we're in Christ Jesus now for good works, that we would walk in them. We're, we're, we're now potent, okay? We were totally impotent, and now we're totally potent. We went from having 0% power as a dead man to having 100% power in Christ Jesus. And that's why it says, now go do the good works. You were saved without works because you were unable, but now you're able. I've made you able. That's the fullness of God's grace at salvation. And by faith, we receive that grace. And now he's like, you can do anything now. All things are possible with God. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. That's what you were called to. How could you be called to that, though, if you didn't have the power given to you? 
So on the board regarding this phrase, four good works. When God saves a person, he creates them in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Now that you're in Christ Jesus, you can do the good works. Believers are born again, John 3.3, 3, created as new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that are forevermore inclined to abide in His righteousness, having eternal life itself. This is why the Spirit spent so much time over the last year on the wonderful results of saving faith, what a true believer looks like. His good work, God's good work, never comes back void in the lives of an adopted child of his because he's changed them. Those who deny his good purpose and power in the lives of the saved will be found wanting, will be found scrambling even for their own methods. The flesh merely on hold by subtracting from God's plan for salvation Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where believers, quote-unquote, are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. It supposes that man decides later if he wants for himself as if he had the right on the issue of the sovereignty of sin. If this were true, God didn't really save them from sin itself. Today's perverted gospels is not only one, present grace as accommodating to man. Like that guy in the park doing drugs. Accommodating to me. I want grace on my terms. I want it to accommodate me. Can I still do whatever I want and be my own sovereign? Well, that's a misconception of grace. Today's perverted gospels present grace as accommodating to man. While the true gospel of Jesus Christ is designed, obviously, to save him, it is not designed to accommodate him. Rather, it's designed to accommodate the righteousness of God. We're saved by his grace for his glory. Remember Ephesians 1. So as we close, how can we bring him glory? By our good works done in obedience to the gospel. In obedience to the Holy Spirit who has given us to empower us. By our following his path, by using his minas that he graciously gave to each one of us at salvation and said, go do business with this. By abiding in the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because now you have the power to do it. By grace through faith, you now have the power to do these amazing good works. And this is what believers do. So, regarding faith and obedience. When someone obeys the gospel, they are granted the obedience that accompanies the gospel. And therefore produce good fruit for the Lord by walking in His steps. John 3.36, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.25-27, and 2 Corinthians 9.13. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. It, it's uh, even a part of faith, obedience is. True faith. When someone obeys the gospel, they're granted the obedience that accompanies the gospel and therefore produce good fruit for the Lord by walking in His steps. I 
I was going to read and go through these verses with you, but we're out of time. I suggest you go home and read them on your own uh, to back up this point. But faith and obedience, the Bible speaks of them as a, um, a unit, for lack of a better way to put it. Like faith is obedient, you know, and if you're not obedient, you don't have faith. They're really hand in hand. So please go home and, and check out those verses on your own. And as we close, we'll close with this point on the board. Regarding faith and obedience, Paul says that unbelievers are called to the obedience that comes from faith. Obedience accompanies true saving faith because surrender to Jesus as Lord, not just Savior, is involved. And that's, again, backed up by those scriptures that were on the board. I'll go back again for you. I can. There we go. John 3:36, Romans 1:5, Romans 16:25-27 and 2 Corinthians 9:13. So, like in closing, the last thing I want to say is this that as you read these verses you'll see faith naturally carries with it a certain obedience. It's impregnated. It's part of the life of faith. That's what happens when you really trust someone with your heart. Just think about that for a minute. Faith naturally carries with it a certain obedience. That's what happens when you really trust someone with your heart. When you trust someone with your heart, okay, it could be God, but maybe you need to think of a person in your life that you've trusted. When you trust someone, you hand over something to them. You take it out of your own hands and you hand it to them. It's a transfer of trust that takes place. It goes from trusting in self, maybe for your own support. Let's say you trust in your, um, I don't know, your earthly father to provide for you. All right? And you're, you're, you're normally trusting in self. I'm worried about what I'm going to eat. I'm worried about where I'm going to live. And then you say, okay, dad. I trust you to take care of that stuff. There's a transfer of trust that took place. You literally said, I'm going to stop trusting in myself and I'm going to trust in you instead. So that's a picture of what happens at salvation. That's faith carrying with it obedience. It's part of real faith. If I'm going to trust in that guy, I'm now willing to do what he says, if I really trust him. If I don't, I'm not. But if I really trust him, I'm going to do what he says because I placed my trust in his hands. I took it away from myself. You know that give up the self-life thing? So just think about that. Um, you know, it's all wonderful stuff I think the Spirit's trying to show us. And those of us that are humble and mull on these points, um, he's bringing us to a greater place of freedom. So with that in mind, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much again for your amazing truths, your amazing grace that truly gives us freedom at salvation for those of us that trust in you and transfer our trust to you. We just thank you so much for your Holy Spirit and for your word that shows us these 
wonderful truths that set us free. Help us bring these truths out, Father, to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.